Today's scripture is from 1 Kings chapter 8, verses 10 and 11. And when the priests came out of the holy place, a cloud filled the house of the Lord, so that the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. All right. Thank you, Liz. If you have to say a word multiple times and repeat yourself, the Lord is a good one to do. Well, good morning, everyone. All right. We're on it together today. My name is Dave. I'm one of the pastors here at Redemption Tucson, and, and I'm so glad you're here to be here with you uh, together this morning. I heard a couple of uh, students trying to get basketball tickets I hope you did. I hope you were successful. For those who aren't here, that's probably what they're doing. And uh, we can pray for them in many ways. If you didn't, I'm sorry. You're, we're in it together with you. And, uh, but better luck next year. Well, uh, we're going to get into our time together. A couple things I just want to say out of the gates. If, if, again, if, if you're new, again, welcome. We'd love to get to know you and would love to get to, to uh, just kind of help you understand who we are and what it looks like to be a part of Redemption Tucson. And also, I want to let you know out of the gates, um, I, I, I have a stutter. It'll kind of come in and out as I preach. And I just want to make sure that you all know what that is so you're not confused trying to figure out if it's... I don't know, hip-hop or the microphone or whatever. It's just me. So uh, now we're going we're gonna to get into our time together. If you have a copy of God's Word, we have a few weeks left in this series we've been walking through in First and Second Samuel and now First Kings. So we're in First Kings chapter 8. If you have, again, a Bible, I encourage you to turn there. We'll be in chapter 8 together. And if you don't have one, will you hold your hand up and keep it up, and somebody will get you a Bible. Y en español, si quiere la Biblia y no tiene, por favor, levanta su mano y diga español. Y si no tiene una Biblia, uh, eso es su regalo um, a usted. So again, this is our gift to you. We want to make sure everyone has a Bible that they understand, right? You might have one that you got when you were a little kid and might be in a translation you don't understand. We want to get everyone a copy of God's word to, to see that as, 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 as God says about his word, that it is profitable and shaping and, and good for all of life. And so uh, that's our desire is to understand what it looks like to live all of life, all for Jesus. And reading and learning the Bible uh, individually and together is the best way to help us on that end. I am realizing I'm holding a different one. You'll get this at the end of our time together. I'll be reading out of this one, but this is the one I'll be in for the most part. Um, will you join me together as we pray and we get into it together? Father, thank you for this time we have together this morning. Um, Lord, we pray, I, I pray that you will speak to us through your word. Um, Lord, I, I acknowledge that um, apart from, from you, my words are um, stumbling and bumbling and, and, and altogether unhelpful. But Lord, by your Holy Spirit speaking to us, at the same moment speaking through my mouth as I seek to depend on you and to see your power, the power of your word communicated to us, the same Spirit is softening hearts, 
opening ears and eyes, Lord, convicting and encouraging. So we recognize that we are in a holy place right now, a set-apart place where you are meeting us and speaking to us. So please prepare us and work powerfully in these moments ahead together. We pray in your name, Jesus. Amen. Let me ask a question as we start out here together. All right. How much does God's presence, God's power, and God's protection shape your life? You might not be a Christian. You might be here and you came with a friend or you, you know, are here because maybe, again, you're new in college and your parents said, oh, I want you to go to church. You're like, well, I might as well go once at least. So Thanksgiving's coming up. I can say I went. You know, that's okay. We're, again, we're, we're glad you're here. But, but again, I just want to put this question before you. How much does God, his power, his presence, his protection actually inform and shape your life? You, you might be a Christian. You might call yourself a Christian. That might be God calling you right now. <laughs> you, might be, you might call yourself a Christian or be a Christian and be wondering, um, even in this moment, how much does who God is actually shape and inform my life. Well, my hope is that through our time together in perhaps seemingly in a unique part of Scripture, right, 1 Kings chapter 8, is that God will speak to us and will reveal that his plan is, again, for his power, his presence, and his protection to shape and define his people and how we live in all of life. So with that in mind, let's pick up together in 1 Kings chapter 8 in verses 1 through 8. And so for this first part, I'll just kind of read and walk through. We'll just kind of read some and stop and expound and and work our way through it. We're not going to cover all 60 plus verses in this chapter together, but but again, we're going to see God speak to us. So in verse 1, then Solomon assembled the elders of Israel and all the heads of the tribes, the leaders of the fathers' houses of the people of Israel, before King Solomon in Jerusalem, to bring up the ark of the covenant of the Lord out of the city of David, which is Zion. And all the men of Israel assembled to King Solomon at the feast in the month Ethanim, which is the seventh month, And all the elders came, and the priests took up the ark. So a couple things here is that the ark is significant, right? You might be thinking, like I did until probably I became a pastor, like, whoa, like like Noah's ark, right? We hear the word ark, we think of that, a big boat that holds animals, and when a big flood comes, that kind of protects you. Well, this, that's, not, that's no, not it. That's not what this is. The Ark of the Covenant is a box-like um, contraption that, uh, that, that, that is, is referred to as, as, as the, the, this, this holy, where, where God's holiness is. And it was, it was ca- carried, it, God gave instructions for how his people were to, were to relate with or to treat this ark. And, it's, and historically, there were multiple items kept in it, including Aaron, who's Moses' brother. Aaron had a rod that was used powerfully by God when he faced, when he kind of went toe-to-toe with Pharaoh. So that's in there, and manna. And then these 
tablets that God himself had written on and given to Moses as God's people were coming out of Egypt and were wandering in the desert and being shaped as God's people. This ark held those items. Well, we see later that if you sort of look ahead, you'll notice it says that the the tablets at this point are the only thing in the ark but the ark is is a is a is a is a holy that word again means set apart it's a it's a a a holy object and it's meant to be um viewed and treated with awe and reverence in fact a number of couple months ago we even learned that that someone who kind of treated it kind of haphazardly actually died because it was on a cart, it's supposed to be carried, and he reached out and he touched it to stabilize it so it didn't fall, and he was struck dead right there. So it's, but here's what it, what it means. Here's what it in, encompasses. The ark is the symbol of God's power and God's presence and God's protection among his people. And then something that we probably wouldn't notice, it specifically says that it, it was during the feast in the month Ethanim, which is in the seventh month. And so that's during the time of the Feast of, Bo- of Booths, or the Festival of Booths, B-O-O-P-H-S, in, in case my stutter got you tripped up there. Uh, the Festival of Booths is, um, is, is a time, actually, some people even in our church actually observe this uh, every, every year. And it's, it's a time of remembering where people would set up temporary structures and would remember the time when God led them when they were wandering homeless through the desert before they found an established home. And this is a time when they would remember, again, God's presence was with us even when we were wandering. God's power was with us even when we felt vulnerable. God's protection was over us even when we didn't know what kind of harm might come our way. So there, it's no accident that this is what's going on in the context of when this, these events are happening. So now picking up with me in verse 4. And they brought up the ark of the Lord the tent of meeting, and all the holy vessels that were in the tent. The priests and the Levites brought them up. So even just that briefly is, again, not just anyone could do it. It wasn't like, hey, we need a volunteer who could do it. No one, you know, this person called out sick. This person sad. We need someone. No, specifically priests. Again, there's a sense of holiness, of God's intentionality and God's oversight. Okay, God is God, and he defines what it means to worship and follow him. And so he says, I want a again, holy, set-apart group of people, known as priests, to carry out these different functions in this temple, which Pastor Marcus walked us through the significance of the building and the establishment of this temple. So, again, that's what's happening there. Then in verse 5, And King Solomon and all the congregation of Israel who had assembled before him were with him before the ark, sacrificing so many sheep and oxen that they could not be counted or numbered. So kind of remember that in as we move ourselves on here. But it's it's important here to know that there's a sense of extravagance or even opulence, and that will continue in Solomon, King Solomon, King David's son. This will continue to kind of define his life and his kingship. But there's this sense of 
extravagance. The temple is extravagantly built, and even these sacrifices are extravagantly given. And then in verse 6, And then the priests brought the ark of the covenant of the Lord to its place in the inner sanctuary of the house, in the most holy place. Have you ever heard the phrase? The holy of holies. So the most set apart. All these actions and things have been set apart, set apart. This is the most set apart, the holiest place where only priests could enter. And even then, very, very rarely. Underneath the wings of the cherubim, for the cherubim spread out their wings over the place of the ark so that the cherubim overshadowed the ark and its poles. So let me just, again, set the tone here briefly for us for a moment. As, again, Pastor Marcus walked us through last week, the, the temple was intentionally designed and built under God's command, as was the tabernacle, which was kind of a temporary temple. The temple is massive and permanent, and the, and the tabernacle, um, or the, the, the tent that moved along with God's people was, was temporary. In both cases, there is all kinds of intentional language that there were pomegranates and, and, and imagery meant to remind God's people of creation, of the garden, the garden of, In- of Eden, the time when God was with his people, when mankind would hear the sound of God walking in the garden and would be encouraged and would run toward him and would walk with him. So there's this beautiful imagery, but when sin entered in to the picture when we chose to rebel against God. So a good way if you wonder what is sin, you know, some people use the term ugly as sin or different things. It just gets kind of thro- thrown around in our, no one else heard ugly as sin? Now I'm getting a complex. It's just me, right? Sin is, 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 is essentially not God. It's rebellion that God created us to be his image bearers, to reflect him in our identity identity, where we would find our meaning and our purpose, our security, our power, would be in his presence, in our relationship to him, that our identity and our purpose is formed and shaped by who we are in relation to God. Well, we individually and corporately, all humanity, rebelled against God. No thanks, God. I want it my way. I want to find power apart from you. I, I want to I decide when I'll be in your presence and when I won't be in your presence. I, I, I want to have, have power and, and influence and identity and purpose that I define. And so when that happened, God kicked the first humans, Adam and Eve, out of the garden in Genesis chapter 3, and there are these consequences. And one of the things he did is he set up this sword that faced every direction. And what was there? A cherub. Cherubim. These angelic creatures. Sometimes you look them up, you Google it, don't do it now. You'll find little chubby babies in diapers playing harps and different things. Um, They were clearly these, again, scary Uh, kind of awe-inspiring angelic creatures. And these cherubim were put at the edge of the garden to prevent mankind from just wandering in and out of the garden because God said, lest they eat of the tree of life and live forever. 
Because God knew that if we did that in our rebellious state, in this state that we chose but are now suffering under, where we come out from under our identity as relating to God, God knew that we would be hopeless if we lived forever apart from him. Life forever apart from God is hell. So what did God do? He set up, he judged us by setting up these cherub, this cherub. That's the imagery here. Again, there's beauty and goodness of remembering the garden and also looking ahead to the final day when God would restore his kingdom and everything would be done in perfect harmony and beauty. Yet right there on this this ark, or the mercy seat as it's referred to, are these cherub, cherubim. Sometimes God's judgment is meant to protect us. I don't know if you heard me, church. Sometimes God's judgment is meant to protect us. We don't want to believe that. That's uncomfortable. But sometimes God knows. He, he puts a, a, a cherub there to, to, as an act of judgment, but it's also to protect us because he knows that if we wander away from him forever, there is no life found there. There is no hope found there. And then... And then God, um, so God begins this whole, this whole mo- movement here, right? This, this, this is happening and God's overseeing these events. And then the whole point of this whole series that we've been in for the last number of months, right? First and second Samuel, first Kings, where we are right now, we could just m- miss this because we think, oh, David and Goliath and all these other different things and all these different events. And now we're in Solomon. And now we're talking about how a big temple is built. And what's the whole point? Well, right here. In verse, verses 10 through 11, we see the whole point of it all. And when the priest came out of the holy place, a cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priest could not stand to minister because of the cloud. For the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. Okay, just pause for a mo- moment right now. This is real life. Okay, this is, this is not kind of Greek mythology where we're, we're sitting here in real life, right? We, we study science and engineering and real things, and this is mythology, right? This is kind of storybook stuff. This is, no, this is a historical event where this, this temple was built, and God, who oversees the process, now fills this temple with his presence, the Shekinah glory, the holiness of God. What what happened in there in verse 11? The priest could not stand to minister because of the cloud for the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. Hear me, the temple doesn't contain God, but God fills the temple His presence is so great, he chooses to bring it about in this one location that the priests can't even stand to do what they're called to do in there because, again, God's holiness, his, his, his awesome power is so great that the priests can't even stand in there. He fills the temple. This should be and would be, like, again, the climactic point of the whole story. Again, just think about it here for a moment. These, these people 
would have remembered stories from their great-great-grandparents who have wandered around in the desert, who were called in Genesis chapter 12 to be God's special people, that God had a plan for them, that his work would be carried out in the entire world through these people. But then they go to Egypt because of a famine, and then they, for many years, they, they start to suffer, and then they start to become slaves. And so they're there in Egypt, and they're wondering, God, are you, where are you? Where's your presence? Where's your power? You're not protecting us. And then that's, that's Exodus. God takes them out. There's, there's a journey where he brings them, he sets them free from Egypt, but then again, they're, through their own choices, it's like this climactic event. Oh, here it is, they finally write, Mo- Moses, you know, on behalf of God, let my people go. And so they go, but then they choose to turn away and to sin, and they suffer, and they again, they, they wander for 40 years, and it's like, boom, 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 here it is, climactic moment. Oh, wait, they've, they've sinned. They've turned away from God again. There's this whole series of these, and this would be one of those most climactic moments. Like, here it is, finally, God has set his people apart. He has is, he is descended into the earth. He has come, God who dwells among us. Finally. So now pause for a moment and we're just going to quickly walk through like the majority of this whole chapter in like 40 some verses. Solomon, like many of us, sometimes gets it, sometimes doesn't get it. When this moment he prays, he calls out to God and he prays what it will mean for God's people to live in light of God's presence, God's power, and God's protection. Let's just quickly walk through these things. I have some Bullet points up here. If you're taking notes, you can kind of copy down these verses. But here's what King Solomon prays as he dedicates the temple to God. The first one, he prays for God to dwell with his people. Again, though the earth can't contain God in any way, God in his goodness and kindness can choose to dwell, to reside, to be with, to have his presence envelop his people. And Solomon sees that's probably a good thing. God, please do that. And then the second thing, he prays for God to judge rightly among his people. He prays that God will condemn the guilty and clear the righteous. Right? In in our day, there's a lot of talk understandably so, rightly so, of injustice. What's right? What's wrong? What should be done? What should not be done? And again, in this moment, Solomon rightly understands, God, you are the one who sees all things. You are the one who decided and and defines righteousness. Judge rightly among your people. Condemn the guilty and set free the righteous. Then number three, he prays for forgiveness and deliverance from sin. He, play, he, he prays that God will lead his people to understand how to repent when his people wander, that God would lead them back. So if you can see it, right, there's this climactic event, but even in his prayer, there's an anticipation that it's not going to last, that God's people are going to mess it up like they always do. God's people, if left to ourselves, are going to rebel against God. That by nature, 
Okay, again, hear me. By nature and by choice, we are sinful. We rebel. And that's even in his prayer. And that will continue here. In, in the next one, number four, Solomon prays that all people of the earth will know and worship God. So again, right there, he gets it. Right, right before he's anticipating that, that God's people will rebel. And he says, God, when we do rebel, will you be kind? Will you show us how to find our way back to you? But then here, he, he understands that God's plan, again in Genesis chapter 12, that God made it known it, that his plan is that one family, Abraham, would be the, the, the way through whom they would be a vessel, an, an avenue, a conduit, right? I have no business talking about anything connected to engineering, but I hear some engineer friends use the term conduit, that we would be a conduit for God's wisdom and blessing and goodness, his presence, his, his power, his protection to be known to the entire world. So Solomon prays that, God, through this temple, let that be the case. Let your goodness and your character be known to the whole World And then number five, for faithfulness and victory when God sends them into battle. God, when you send us into battle, let us be faithful to your plan, to your mission, and then as a result, bring about your victory. And then lastly, he prays for God to bring them back from exile. So again, there's a knowledge and an anticipation. Now, the editor of this First and Second Kings um, understood that the people were in exile, and they needed to again understand the big picture here. But still, Solomon knows that this is going to be short-lived, whether he knows it or not. Okay, God knows that that the story is not going to end with him being his cloud filling this building. Because sadly, this is short-lived. Again, this climactic event, right? Here it is, God's, God himself, right? The Shekinah glory, his, the cloud fills this temple, right? You, some of you have this song, if you were uh, around in the 90s like I was in church settings. You know, this idea of the whole era of this, this temple being filled with God's glory. It's the climactic event, these two verses, but it's short-lived. In fact, Ezekiel chapter 10 is tragic. We learn that God's temple actually, or God's presence actually leaves the temple. So again, if you were to read this or to hear this, you're like, yes, yes. Oh, wait, but I know he, he actually ends up leaving the temple. Actually, 470 years after it's built in 587 BC, can we learn in Ezekiel chapter 10, God's presence leaves the temple and then the temple is destroyed. Okay, we have the, the, the historic kind of benefit of being able to look back and to remember like that date. But imagine being there in this moment. Like, I don't know if any of you have ever bought a new house or I don't know, a new car or at least just had a room that you got to decorate, you know, your dorm room, whatever it is. Like, imagine you do that, you put all that work. Now multiply that times like a million, right? Just this is gold, beauty, this, this structure is one of the you know, seven historic wonders of the world, this massive, beautiful temple, and yet it, it gets completely destroyed, completely wiped out. It's, it, it, is, it, it cannot be more anticlimactic. 
God's temple comes, fills it, boom, he's gone. Because anything God inhabits cannot be destroyed. Come on, someone. Okay, God fills this temple, he's there. That's why he had to remove his presence from the temple because it can't be destroyed. But God's people are sinning against him. They've turned away from him. They are wandering and God says, it's not good for you to live this way. So he removes his presence from the temple. The temple gets destroyed. They get taken away. They're in utter exile. Imagine if that's the end of the story. Let's, let's pray. There it is, like... What is it? Here's, here's the big idea of the sermon. Eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow you die. Okay, my family kind of lived this way. We lived feast or fa famine, by the way. We were kind of paycheck to paycheck type of family. And my mom, single mom, it would be like, man, mom got paid. We're going to Blockbuster. Some of you don't even know what Blockbuster is. Or you might because there's a Netflix show now about it or something. But it was real for us. Anyone else? This is real life. Yeah, I even remember when Blockbuster became like the thing. Before that, it was like 7-Eleven is where you got your movies. And then there were a couple kind of makeshift, you know, little freestanding places. Then, you know, Big Brother Blockbuster came into town, and now they're all gone. So uh, there's always a big, bigger dog in the neighborhood. Well, we would all go to Blockbuster, and every kid, all four of us, we all got to pick out our own movie, and we would go to Sizzler. Some of you don't know about Sizzler either. <laughs> Get all you can eat sizzler, and it was big time. And, and sometimes, this is just kind of, this is off the script here for a minute, but that's just um, kind of, it, it's, it's easy to judge people in that in, in environment, but sometimes when you don't know when the next kind of, when the next good time is going to come, when you're used to just kind of slugging it out, you know, day in and day out, it's like, well, we got paid, the bill collectors are going to be coming soon, we might as well have a good night. You know, have a good weekend, eat well and have fun and kind of forget about our troubles. Well, if this is the end of the story, if just God's presence fills the temple and then he leaves again and you just, you've gotten so used to, it's going to be good, but it's always going to come crashing down. Then the only message for us is look, whip it up while you can. Again, eat, drink, be merry, have fun. It's, there's kind of the bill collectors always coming. The grim reapers always knocking at the door. Some of us don't confess that kind of faith, but we actually operate out of it. That's just the way we believe life is meant to be lived. And so we either try to numb ourselves with narcotics, with technology, or we try to convince ourselves with, through hard work or study or education or once I marry up or do, you know, it's, it'll be, that's my way out, that's my hope. But inevitably there's this kind of low level of hopelessness because that, that's not trustworthy. It's not lasting. But thankfully it's not the end of the story. In Ezekiel chapter 36, when God's people are again, they're exiled, they're out, they're wandering. God says that a day is going to come. Okay, so these are people, this is like around 70 years after this temple is destroyed, a new one is built. But it's like a pathetic example. It's a pathetic kind of picture of, of even this one. But God tells his people, hey, a, a day's coming when I'm going to change your hearts. These hard hearts of stone are going to be changed. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to actually give you soft hearts. That's when he's, you don't just need a new building, a new structure, right? We know something about wanting a new building here, right? 
where we can actually control the thermostat ourselves, like that's power, right? <laughs> yeah, we see that, but that's not real power, right? There's a sense where God says, you don't just need a new building, you need new hearts. And then God says, you know what else is going to happen in those hearts? My spirit is going to dwell there. Not just in a new fancy building, not in this holy of holies where you get everything's right. That's good. You honored me, but that's just a little picture. That's like, again, we're going back. I don't know if I'm feeling nostalgic or what right now, but if you remember those little like negatives when you get the pictures at Walgreens, you'd be looking, there's these little things called negatives which you hold up and you can like barely see a little sliver of what the actual picture will be. Like the temple is just but a little picture of what's to come. And in Jeremiah chapter 31, God says, no, the day's coming when my spirit is actually going to dwell not in a temple built by human hands, but in hearts designed by God himself. And then many, many years later, about 600 years later, in this mere shadow of a temple that was finally built, under Roman rule, injustice is seemingly ruling and reigning on the earth. Jesus. God and man, Emmanuel, God with us, would come and be dedicated as a baby in the temple. No one would know that God's presence had returned, that God's presence is now in the temple, not in cloud form, but in human form. And then as a young boy, Jesus would return with his parents and would educate and teach, we're told in scripture, as one with authority. That word authority, what's the root word there? Author. The, as one of original stuff, the author of wisdom would stand and would teach with authority and people would be confused. And then Jesus' life would continue to cause confusion that God's presence usually was terrifying and, 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 and everyone had to flee. But this time, God's presence in the flesh among people, ushering in God's kingdom the way things should be. What would he do with that? Well, counterintuitively, he would humble himself. He would sit with the most financially destitute that society knew. He would heal people with physical disabilities. He would heal the shame of people who thought that their choices or the things that had been done to them would define the rest of their lives. And Jesus wrote a different story. Jesus came and completely changed what it meant for God to dwell among his people. And then when people started to get a little glimpse of it, started to understand it, Jesus said, I'm actually gonna suffer. I'm going to die on your behalf. And again, his people wouldn't understand. Even one of his best friends, Peter, rebukes Jesus for it. He's like, don't say that. And Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. You, you don't know what I came to do. Because remember Solomon's sacrifices that couldn't even be numbered? Well, guess what? That wasn't enough. <laughs> Every year, more and more sacrifices had to be offered. Every year, they, they had to find their most pure animals to, to stand as substitutes for their sin. And death had to be, 
had to be uh, executed and blood had to be spilled because when we rebelled and turned away from God, the, the result of that is death. And so for, for people not to die, they had to trust God's kindness by offering sa- animal sacrifices week in and week out, day in and day out, year in and year out. But it wasn't enough. So Jesus gave himself completely without sin, not, 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 not deserving of any judgment of any kind, offered himself as a perfect sacrifice. He died, and then on the third day, God ushered in a new way of life. He put death to death. The final sacrifice had been paid through Jesus, and then Jesus rose again, and he said, you know, the, now I'm here with you in, 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 in person, and he, he, ush, he rose from the dead. He said, this is the new life that through faith in me, you, you, you will, not, though you die, you will live for, forever, and he said, if you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus, is, that, 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 that Jesus died for your sins and rose from the dead, that then you will be saved and there's this and then guess what Jesus said he said I'm gonna leave so again there's this climax oh Jesus he rose from the dead mind blown oh he's leaving like how many of us just that's our life oh I got a church camp high oh oh I came to church I got I got some church on me I'm feeling good and boom, I, you know, I flipped someone off in traffic, or man, I got fired from my job on Monday, or again, I don't know, it's like, it just feels completely disorienting. Why would Jesus leave? He actually said it's better. It's better that I leave, because I'm going to send you a helper. His people didn't understand that in the moment. What? You're going to send us a helper? You're with us, right? How many of us think, how much easier would it be with Jesus was just here, <laughs> right? If Jesus was right here by me, like, you, you wouldn't do that, right? You wouldn't do that. You wouldn't do that. Jesus is right here by you. Jesus said it's better for him not to just be standing right next to us. How? Why? To kind of close out our sermon, I'm going to read from this because I just think it paints such a beautiful picture. And I have it up here on the screen, the Jesus Storybook Bible. So I'm going to read here. So join me, church, for storybook time. As we, get in, uh, as we get explained to us the good news of how it would be better that Jesus would leave. Jesus' friends and helpers huddled together in a stuffy upstairs room. Even though it was sunny outside, the shutters were closed. The door was locked. Wait in Jerusalem, Jesus had told them. I'm going to send you a special present. God's power is going to come into you. God's Holy Spirit is coming. So here they were, waiting. Actually, mostly what they were doing was just being scared and hiding. Right? We can't blame them. Their best friend had left. The important people and leaders were after them. And Jesus had given them a job they didn't know how to do. How familiar does that feel to some of us? As they waited, they were praying and remembering. Sometimes that's all we can do, church. They were praying and remembering. Remembering how from the beginning, God had been working out his secret plan. Suddenly, a strong wind filled the little room, whistling through the walls, rustling the straw on the floor. And there, 
on everyone's heads, shining in the gloom were flickering flames, fire that didn't hurt or burn, and something more inside, in their hearts, they felt a strange heat, almost as if all the coldness and hardness were melting away, as if their broken hearts were mending. Come on. And God was giving them brand new hearts, hearts that could work properly. How it happened, they didn't know, but they knew God's power had struck their hearts ablaze. And Jesus himself was coming to live inside them. How is it better that Jesus would go from being right next to us? The only thing better is that he would come to live inside of us. Amen? They had seen Jesus go away, but now he was closer than he had ever been, inside their hearts. And this time, nothing could ever separate them. Jesus would always be there with them, loving them whispering the promise that would get rid of the poison and the terrible lie and the sickness in their hearts. God's wonderful promise to them, you are my child and I love you. Make your home in me as I make my home in you, Jesus said. Could it be heaven was coming into their hearts? They threw open the shutters. Sunlight flooded their room as love had flooded their hearts. And the little room was filled with happy noises, dancing feet, seeking, singing, laughing. Is this a picture for our worship time, church? They unlocked the door and surged out into the streets as if they had never been afraid. Peter spoke in a loud voice so everyone could hear, Jesus died for you. He said, because he loves you, but God made him alive again. He rescued you. People stopped and listened. Church, what if our life as a church demanded an explanation of the community that we're in? People stopped and listened. The words sank down deep into their hearts. This is different from playing church, isn't it? <laughs> Worked like a medicine that makes you well like the antidote to a deadly poison, like a kiss that wakes you from a deep sleep. Stop running away from God, Peter said. Run to him instead so he can love you and make you free. And Peter told them the wonderful story of God's love. God's never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. How Jesus had come, all that had happened. Church, this is the gospel. This story is not anticlimactic. Two verses in 1 Kings chapter 8 should be mind-blowing. The Shekinah glory, God himself, his presence filling the temple. But because that could never be the end of the story, it feels rightly so like a blip like a necessary part of the story, but not really good news. But God himself offering himself as a final sacrifice to reconcile his rebellious image bearers to relationship with our creator, to relationship with one another, to relationship with ourselves, and then raising from the dead and saying, even when you die, 
even in your hospice bed like my mom is currently on, you can look death in the eye and say, where is your sting? Alzheimer's, you don't win. Cancer, you don't win. Injustice, war, suffering, you don't win. Jesus rose from the dead. And then how could it be good news that he would leave? Because he said, I'll no longer just stand beside you, but I'll live in you. My presence, my power, and my protection will define your whole lives. Church, let's pray. Lord Jesus, we need you. Lord, some of us came here this morning not knowing that we need you. Lord, I confess the pathetic version of Christianity I am so often tempted to live. Lord, I confess with my mouth, but I don't believe in my heart. I say God's presence, God's power, God's protection. But man, when the stock market plunges, when the seemingly impending depression is coming, when pandemics hit, when my family is struggling, when anxiety floods my heart, I, I, I sit scared in a, in, a, in a room, whether actually or metaphorically. Lord, I pray that for some of us, we need to know it's good and right to in those moments pray and remember. Lord, help us to share stories with each other. Lord, let us never forget your works in our own. For those who have known you, who have been Christians for like over 50 years, Lord, even this morning, remember afresh your works. Lord, for every one of us in this room, remind us of the miracle of you warming our hearts, softening our hearts, leading us to relationship with you, filling our hearts with your Holy Spirit. And Lord, for others here who either know they're Christians and just so happen to be here today because you're calling them to yourself, you're revealing your goodness to them, Lord, speak your plan of filling their hearts, of changing their lives, of giving hope and power through your presence. Lord, through your gospel, through your good news. And for those who, again, Lord, confess but struggle to actually lead it out, Lord, lead us now into a time of response, a time of worship as a church together. In Jesus' name, amen.